Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. For those of you who are here, are you glad you came this morning? What a wonderful time singing songs of worship to our great God. I mean, oh, he deserves it. He's worthy of all of our praise. He really is. In just a couple of moments, we're going to gather around the communion, service, around the communion table, and we're going to receive the bread and the cup. We're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and all that he willingly did to give us life and that more abundantly. And when we receive communion together, it's always a very special time in God's presence. And so we're going to do that in just a few minutes. But first, let me share a couple of thoughts with you. One of my favorite stories in the entire Bible takes place on Easter Sunday. Only I'm not talking about the resurrection account. And please don't misunderstand me. The resurrection of Jesus on Sunday morning, Easter morning, is the greatest story ever told absolute greatest story. It's what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. However, the story or the event that I want to convey to you happened a little bit later on that same day, quite possibly mid-afternoon, when two disciples of Jesus decided they had enough and they were determined to call it quits. Two very sincere disciples of Jesus Christ, two men that had been following Jesus probably for the last three years of their lives, they were completely discouraged and frustrated. They could no longer deal with all of the personal disappointments, the bad news, and the uncertainties that were taking place in their world. Now, keep in mind, they had just witnessed the brutal death of Jesus on the cross. Their rabbi, their closest friend in the whole wide world, was just crucified without mercy. And then he died and he was buried. But then they heard reports from some of the women in their group who had gone to the gravesite that they had seen a vision of angels. And the angels declared to this group of women that Jesus wasn't dead, he was alive. But none of the other disciples, not Peter, James, or John, or any of the other disciples that had followed Jesus, were able to confirm what the women had said was true. And now the report was that the body of Jesus, his dead body, was missing. It was no longer in the grave. And so, because of everything I just described to you, the death of Jesus, the conflicting reports, the emotional highs and lows, it all took its toll on these two disciples and it completely removed the wind from their sails. They were frustrated and they decided they had enough. They just could not do the religious thing any longer. And so... On their way to Emmaus, that's where they were going, as they left Jerusalem, they were going to a little town about six miles west of Jerusalem, and on their way out of the, the city, that's when a resurrected Jesus joined their little two-man pity party. 
And if you can believe this, the two disciples didn't know it was him. For whatever reason, they did not recognize that it was Jesus. And Jesus, being a friendly guy, wanting to break the ice, he said to the guys, hey, how's it going? And immediately they stopped dead in their tracks, and they said to Jesus, are you only a stranger in Jerusalem? Don't you know all the things that have been taking place here over the past couple of days? And Jesus, playing along with them, said, what things? And together they both cried out, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a mighty prophet of God, powerful in word and in deed, able to perform miracles. Our chief priests and elders turned him over to the Roman authorities, and they gave him the death sentence. He actually was crucified and died right before our very eyes. But we had hoped. We had hoped he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one sent by God to redeem us. And they said to Jesus, don't you understand? He was our anthem of hope. The very reason that we were alive, the very reason that we had any joy at all. And now with him gone, so is all of our hope, all of our expectation. They're crushed. Our dreams have been shattered. Are you getting the picture here? Are you beginning to understand what was going on in the hearts and the lives of these two disciples? They were spiritually and emotionally deflated filled with discouragement and despair. Simply put, they lost hope. And friends, hope is one of the key elements of life we can't do without. It's absolutely essential. It's important. It's necessary. And don't look now, but we absolutely have to have hope in order to get out of bed in the morning. It's something that we need, every single one of us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul the Apostle said, now these three remain. In other words, there are three key components of life that will always prevail. We always have to have them. Do you remember what they are? Faith, hope, and love. One more time. Hope and love. And if you can believe it, Paul sandwiched hope right in the middle of these two powerhouses called faith and love. And we all know love is important, right? We know love is essential and love is significant. In John chapter 13 and 34, just a couple of hours before Jesus went to the cross and died, he gave us this command. This is what the scripture says in John 13, 34. This is my command, not a suggestion. It's not optional. It's not a good idea. The instruction and the commandment that I give to you is what? To love one another as I have loved you. Jesus went on to say the first and greatest commandment that God has ever passed along to mankind is to love. To love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it was Paul the Apostle said, it doesn't matter what else you do in this life. If love is not at the forefront of all of your actions and all of your activity and everything that you're involved in, everything else is in vain. So how I many know love is important? Faith too. 
Hebrews 11:6 says, without it, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't even begin to please God without faith. Faith is the only way we could ever get beyond our human limitations. Faith is what moves God into action. It opens the door to the impossible. And faith puts a huge smile on God's faith. So there's faith and there's love. And on the heels of both of those tremendous blessings from God comes this monumental gift called hope. Hope is real. Listen to me. Hope is tangible. It's not an idea. It's powerful. And hope is what tethers us to the promise of a good or a better tomorrow. Hope is what allows us to face the future. Now, please don't confuse hope with optimism. It's not the same. Repeat that. Hope, repeat after me, hope and optimism are not the same. In fact, they're totally different. And don't get me wrong, I think it's great to be optimistic. In fact, I am the eternal optimist. And I always look for the best outcome and the, the best case scenario in every situation. I mean, I just think it's better to be positive than negative. That's just me. But hope is so much more than a mental attitude or a mindset. Hope is a confident and faith-filled expectation of something good. I'm going to repeat that again. It's more than just what we think. It's more than a mindset. It's a faith-filled expectation of something good. You see, the pessimist in a bad situation will say, it's bad. Oh, it's really bad. It's terrible. And it's not going to get any better. That's what a pessimist will say. An optimist will look right over the top of bad news and say, you know, it's really not that bad. It's manageable. And it's probably going to get better before you know it. But a hope-filled person will say, it may look bad and it may be bad, and I don't know that it's going to get any better, but I believe in the faithfulness of God. I'm standing on the promises of God because the promises of God are yes and amen. That's what the hope-filled person says. In any situation, I believe in the faithfulness of God. I'm standing on the promise of God because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all the promise of God, not 99% of them, all of them are yes and amen. And check this out. This is going to be good for some of you. God is not confined to fulfilling his promises here on earth. I'll say that again. God is not confined to fulfilling his promises here on earth. His word is eternal. And how many know he has all of eternity to make good on his promises? In other words, we may not see the completion of all that God has promised to us. Some of his promises are reserved for the next reality when this life is over. And if you don't believe me, go back to the book of Revelation. Pardon me, the book of Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and read about all of the Bible heroes who are listed there in what's called the Hall of Faith. Men and women like Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Gideon and Moses and Rahab and David. A long list of them. And here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 39 concerning this group of people and many others. 
They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them. How many? One more time. None of them received what had been promised. Isn't that incredible? These heroes of the faith, they went to their grave not receiving the promises of God, but believing them. Believing that every single word God had spoken was true. So let me say it again. Hope is not optimism. It's not based on earthly desire, worldly dreams, or wishful thinking. Hope is deeply rooted in the eternal word of God and his everlasting promises. That's where hope lives and that's where hope breeds. And a hope-filled person stands upon the word of God and cannot be shaken. Now, there's a compelling uh, verse of scripture, tiny little verse of scripture tucked away, hidden away in the book of Job, and most of us would read right over the top of it, even if we read it, and you know, we probably read it before, but I don't know if it ever sunk in. Here's what it says in Job chapter 8, verse 11, I think it says 11 through 13, but it's actually verse 11, it says, those who forget God have no hope. Let that sink in for a second. Those who forget God have no hope. Remember, I just told you, we all need hope. We see the proof of this statement lived out each and every day in this culture. And the more distance we put between us and God, the less hope people have. Those who forget God, those who reject him, those who ignore his word, they find themselves with very little hope. They border on the hopelessness and the despair all the time. And recently I just came across a list of behaviors that take place when a culture or a society undermines the importance of God. When a culture chooses to dishonor or to discredit or disrespect God, here's what happens. Are you ready? Truth is minimized. Life is trivialized. Wealth is prioritized. Advertising is sensualized. Language is vulgarized. Sports are idolized. Conscience is desensitized. Education is secularized. Free markets are monopolized. Races are polarized. Crime is sensationalized. Immorality is popularized. Drugs are legitimized. Sin is glamorized. Courts are paralyzed, behavior uncivilized, Christians are demonized, God is marginalized, and the culture is demoralized. This is what follows. This is what happens to any culture, any society that undermines the majesty and the beauty of our creator God. Is there any wonder why there is so much discouragement and despair in our world today. Why many, many people are moving in a direction away from God instead of toward him, even in times of trouble. And just like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, on Easter Sunday, no less, moving from Jerusalem, from the place of God's presence, to Emmaus, Just like those two disciples, many, many good Christian people today are hanging their heads, 
totally confused, and they're repeating the same statement over and over again. But we had hoped. We had hoped. You see, according to the research, there are five common causes of despair these days. Let me give them to you. The latest and greatest research, the top five reasons why people are struggling, why we feel so hopeless and powerless. Number one, life seems out of control. Can you say amen to that? For many, many people, life is just out of control, and, there's, and no matter what they do, they just can't seem to right the ship. They can't fix it. There's nothing on the, uh, positive on the horizon, nothing in the future that can give the assurance that things are going to get better. And these people seem to be pulled in every direction, and they're lost, and they, they feel powerless. And so you end up losing your confidence your assurance, and your sense of accomplishment. Number two, grief. Grief is a huge cause of hopelessness. And there is so much grief in our world, so much pain, so much suffering, sickness and death. And when you grieve the loss of a loved one or when you find yourself on the receiving end of several losses in a row, it can take the spring out of your step. How many of you know that? Grieving will cause you to lose hope. You know, back in January, first part of this year, even before we knew anything at all about COVID, I was hit with four devastating deaths right in a row. Family members and close friends. I mean, in a second, I found myself deep down in the dumps. I mean, way down. And I had to fight like crazy to get out. Because grieving the loss of loved ones, grieving the pain and the suffering in our world, that can just rip the hope right out of your heart. Number three, reasons why people feel so hopeless today. Things look like a defeat. May not be a defeat, but they look like it. And today, many, many people feel that way. They feel deflated. They feel defeated. It's almost like the whole world is against them. They just can't catch a break. Every time they turn around, they're hit with another wave of bad news. And everything just looks so bad. Number four, you don't see the purpose. I mean, it makes no sense, the things that are happening. There's no rhyme or reason to what's taking place. You know, you could almost handle the pain, the challenge, and the adversity if you understood why. I mean, if you could analyze it and figure it all out and it made sense to you, you could almost process it. But when you're pulled in every direction and there seems to be no focus or no purpose, that can take the wind out of your sails. It can cause you to second guess the promises of God. All right, last one, number five, feelings of abandonment. Like you're all alone, all by yourself. No one understands. No one knows what you're going through. No one in the whole wide world. And how many of you know you can feel alone even when you're not alone? I mean, there might be some of you here in this room, even with all this activity, with all the people around you, and you still feel isolated and disconnected and alone. So let's look at these five one more time. Let's look at them real carefully. There's 
Number one, life seems out of control. Number two, so much grief in the world. Number three, things look like a defeat. Number four, you just don't see the purpose. And number five, there's feelings of abandonment, feelings that you just are all by yourself. And with those five elements up on the screen, can I ask you if any of these kinds of things can happen to a believer? Is it possible? I'm talking about a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, somebody who has passion for the Word of God, someone who is wholeheartedly committed to God, someone who loves Jesus with all of their hearts. Can they experience this kind of thing? Absolutely they can. In fact, this is precisely what the two disciples were going through in the story that I just described to you. Make the comparison here for just a few moments as I get through this. Look at the list up on the screen. For these two disciples that decided to leave Jerusalem to bail on their faith and get to this place called Emmaus, a, a, a town or a city that nobody knew anything about me. What, what, what was Emmaus? What was in Emmaus? And they're running. They're, they're going to find a place to hide and get away from the things of God. And those two disciples, as they were going, for them, life had snowballed out of control. And there was absolutely no way that they could fix their dilemma. Number two, they were grieving the death of Jesus. Do you know what it must have felt like to watch the man that they thought was the savior of the world die that excruciating death on the cross? I mean, it must have broke their heart, pierced their soul. All right, number three, do you think they felt defeated? Better believe they did. I mean, they, their lives just went up in smoke, completely down the tubes. Everything that they believed in, everything they had given their lives to. Number four, they couldn't see the purpose. Jesus dying on the cross made absolutely no sense to them. And do you think they felt abandoned? Alone? Afraid? Isolated? Yes. Yes. A thousand times yes. In fact, we're told in Luke chapter 24 that hopelessness blinded their eyes. I mean, these two disciples, they had a close and intimate relationship with Jesus. They spent quality time with him. They listened to him preach. They were drawn by his message. They watched him perform signs and wonders, and yet he was walking right alongside of them, and they did not know it. They were in the presence of the resurrected king and they did not know it. Is hopelessness that powerful? Can it really blind us that way? You better believe it can. Hope can strip us, uh, pardon me, hopelessness can strip us of our faith. It can strip us of our hope in God. It can take away all of the, the passion that we have for him. It's possible that that can happen. It can happen to good believers fully devoted followers, but I promise you this, in your deepest and darkest hour, God is with you. He's always with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. That's the promise we have in the Word. He's a good God. He's a covenant-keeping God. It's the kind of God we were singing about all morning. And this is our undeniable hope. I'm going to say it again. This is the hope that we have. 
we have this hope that God will not leave us. He will always be with us regardless of what we're going through. And Hebrews 6.19 says, this hope is the anchor for our soul. The Amplified Version says this anchor is sure and steadfast. It cannot slip. It cannot break. What a powerful concept. And if you know anything at all about an anchor, it does two things, basically. It has two responsibilities or two assignments. A hope has two, uh, an anchor has two purposes. Number one, keeps the boat from drifting. And number two, it secures the boat during the storm. That's what God's promises will do in the heart of every believer. His truth, his gospel, his word, his instructions, his precepts, they are a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. But you know what? We have to use the anchor. We have to be willing to throw it out. We have to make sure that it doesn't just stay on the boat. We must stand upon the promises of God. All right, we're going to make our way to the communion table in just a couple of moments, but I want to tell uh, or look at one more story. And instead of reading, uh, pardon me, instead of telling this story in my own words, which I like to do uh, from time to time, what I want to do is look at it word for word in the scripture. So you can follow along here on the screen or you can use your Bible or any device that you have. Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 34. This is the last story, and then we're going to receive communion. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, hit a couple of times? Severely beaten. After they were beaten within an inch of their lives, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. And we don't need that song just yet. Okay, let's, let's shut that down. The jailer woke up, and when we saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and your household. Then they, Paul and Silas, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in this house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, and he, the jailer, was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. All right, if that music kind of interrupted your train of thought here, let me recap that for you, okay? Here in Acts chapter 16... Paul and Silas were severely beaten and put in prison. But they weren't manhandled and abused physically because they robbed a bank or held up a liquor store. No, they were thrown into prison because they were preaching Jesus. 
They were attempting to point people to Jesus. And after receiving what the scripture describes as a severe beating, and I'm telling you, the, 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 the guards knew, they, they knew how to beat somebody to nearly death. They were thrown into prison, and the scripture tells us around midnight, Paul and Silas decided to host this little prayer and praise time. So after they prayed a while, they began to sing, but they didn't keep the singing or the worship to themselves. No, they were singing at the top of their lungs. And I know that because the Bible tells us the other prisoners were listening. And this devotion to God at such a difficult time in their lives, as they were worshiping the Lord, it moved the heart of God so much that God planned yet another prison break. Only this time around, it was going to be an earthquake. And it was an earthquake. And it shook the jail so violently that all the prison doors opened and all the chains came off all the prisoners. And when the jailer realized what had happened, the first thing he did was draw his sword but not to go after the prisoners. He was going to fall on it and kill himself because he knew if any of the prisoners escaped, he would be held accountable. He would be responsible for every one of those prisoners, especially Paul and Silas, and he knew what was coming if they got away. He was probably going to be tortured and then killed because that's exactly what happened to the soldiers who were guarding Peter a short time earlier when the angel of the Lord came and let Peter out of prison. Remember that? The scripture says Herod himself got involved, and after he examined and interrogated the soldiers, he executed them and put them to death. And the jailer didn't want that to happen, so he was ready to fall on his sword. However, this time around, before the jailer had a chance to kill himself, Paul cried out, and in the darkness, pitch black, he said, don't do it. We are all here. None of us have escaped. And so the jailer called for lights, and when he saw all the prisoners were still in their cells, he put the sword away. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Paul to get a little payback for everything that the soldiers had done to him. Do you know how many times they abused him? Not just this time. He was beaten with rods. He was beaten with whips. He he was beaten with their fists. They took advantage of him. They made his life miserable. He spent a lot of time in prison. I, I bet that he received a ton of beatings at their hands. He could have let the jailer kill himself. He could have let all of the soldiers suffer the consequences of God allowing them to get out of prison that night. But friends, according to this story, he was more interested in his enemies getting saved than exacting uh, vengeance on them. I'm going to repeat that again. In light of all the negatives that he had received at the hands of those soldiers, he was more interested in them coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior than getting revenge. And he did not use this tremendous act of God, this earthquake, for his own benefit, but rather he chose to save the life of that jailer in this world and in the world to come. And immediately following him telling the jailer to stop and put your sword away, 
with his back ripped open and his flesh completely shredded from the beating, he began to preach the gospel message to the jailer and to his household. He led them in the sinner's prayer and they all got saved and they all were baptized. This is what hope will do for you. This is what hope does for us as believers, even or especially when we're in situations that would normally or typically cause hopelessness and despair. In other words, we can find ourselves in really challenging and adverse conditions and still have hope. We can still put our trust in God. We can still believe in the faithfulness of God and stand upon his word. Hope can become the anchor of our souls. It can cause us to be unmovable, to make sure that we're not always drifting, not always floating around. Every time we hear something new, it causes us to be locked in. It secures us during the storms of life. This is what happens when the believers choose to stand upon the promises of God. And we don't go in the direction of how we feel, what we think we should do, but we choose God's way. And so if Job 8.11 is true, if in fact they who forget God have no hope, then the opposite must be true as well. That they who remember God, those who put their trust in God, those who believe the word and the promise of God, they're filled with hope. They can have a refreshing of hope in his presence. Okay, let's bow our heads and prepare for communion. Father, we take just a couple of moments here this morning before we make our way to the communion table to just focus our attention upon you. Because we're asking for some miracles this morning, Lord. I would venture to say that if we were honest, some of us would have to say, spiritually speaking, we're in the place called Emmaus. We have traveled away from the presence of God. We've walked away from Jerusalem. And it's not so much that we don't love you or don't want to serve you, God. It's just that hopelessness and despair has consumed our hearts. And Lord, I'm praying for every person here this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill us with hope. That, Lord, that we could all leave here today knowing that you are the anthem of hope that we have. And I'm asking, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to spread throughout this place into every home where people are listening, where people are watching. And I pray, Lord, by the power of God that it would happen miraculously. It would happen suddenly. It wouldn't take forever. Lord, you give us this gift. Sometimes we can't do it on our own. We can't right the ship. We can't fix things. Sometimes grief is so overwhelming. We feel deflated. We feel defeated. We're alone. We're afraid. We feel disconnected and isolated. 
we just don't understand, Lord. It just doesn't make sense. We need you to do something by the power of your spirit as only you can. Put a deposit, Lord, a divine deposit of hope in the hearts of your people today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we begin this series that we're going to take through the month of October called the Anthem of Hope, I built this first installment, this first lesson around the story in Luke chapter 24 where these two discouraged disciples decided to leave Jerusalem on Easter Sunday and make their way to this unknown town called Emmaus. And for those of you who know the story, right about now you might be thinking, but you know what, you left out the best part. He didn't tell the end of the story. Well, the truth is I saved the best for last. And I'm going to tell the end of the story now during our communion service. You see, the scripture tells us that when Jesus, not recognized by these two disciples, joined their little group and began to talk to them, they poured out their hearts. And they shared quite honestly with Jesus their discouragement and their despair and everything that they had been through what they were struggling with, what they were believing in. And the scripture tells us that Jesus, starting in the book of Exodus with Moses and all the prophets, took them on a comprehensive journey through the scripture, declaring to them and proving to them that everything that had happened had to happen according to the scriptures. That it was a fulfillment of everything that God had spoken, even though they didn't know it, even though they couldn't possibly have understood it. It had to happen. And the Messiah was going to have to suffer everything that he did because that was God's plan. That he was going to have to go to the cross. He was going to have to die and become the final sacrifice. That it was all in the word of God. And Jesus just rolled it all out for these disciples. And later on they would say, didn't our hearts burn inside of us when he was talking? And as Jesus was finishing up that little lesson that he was given to the two of them, they reached their destination place. And since it was so late, they invited Jesus to come in for a cup of coffee, and he agreed. And they sat down at the table, and there happened to be a little loaf of bread there. And Jesus took the bread. The scripture says he broke it. He gave thanks And he passed the bread to these two disciples. And as soon as they received the bread from Jesus' hand, their eyes were open. And they got a revelation that this was, in fact, Jesus, the resurrected king. And then immediately Jesus was gone, disappeared, went in thin air. And these two disciples looked at each other, bread still in hand. They got up and they ran all the way back to Jerusalem, double-timed it for six miles. They found the 11 disciples and all the women. And they said, it's true, Jesus is alive. The angels were telling the truth. As if angels could lie. (laughs) We saw him with our own eyes. We didn't know at first that it was him. He was walking alongside of us for maybe an hour. We didn't recognize it was him. But as soon as he broke the bread and gave it to us, we knew it was him. See, there's something really powerful about this little thing called communion where we take the bread and the cup 
where we're reminded that his body was broken so that ours wouldn't have to be. That's what this is about. His blood was shed so ours wouldn't have to be. That he became the final sacrifice for us so that we could live a life not only pleasing and worthy of our calling, but also a fulfilled life with hope and expectation, standing upon the promises of God. Scripture says it was on the night Jesus was betrayed that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for, for you. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper was ended, he took the cup. And again, he gave thanks. He passed the cup to his disciples said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. Every time. Every time we recall what Jesus did for us on the cross, every time we take the moments to remember, not just go through the motions quickly, not just pace ourselves through another church ordinance, but actually recall what this communion service is all about and what it signifies. We receive yet another revelation of his love and commitment to us. That's one of the reasons why he wanted us to do this often, so that we would renew that covenant relationship. We could remember that we're in covenant with God. And when we receive that revelation, you know what happens? It instills hope. It helps us to understand that we have a covenant God that cannot forsake us. And even when he's walking alongside of us and we don't know it's him, He's there. Even when we have no clue that God is right next to us, he will not leave us or forsake us. Friend, he's by your side. And it was the communion time, the breaking of bread, that caused these disciples to move from a place of hopelessness and despair and run back to the place of God's presence. And I'm praying that for you this morning for every one of you. Can I get you to just bow your head? I'm wondering if there might be anyone here who would say or would be willing to admit, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand, that based on the story that I've told today, the message, the way that I've communicated it, that probably you're closer to Emmaus than you are Jerusalem. What I'm praying right now is that you would do a 180 and double time it back to the place of God's presence. That there would be so much hope and revelation that would come to you during this communion time that you would know your spiritual eyes would be open, your blindness would be gone, and you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, a doubt that God is with you. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Regardless of what it looks like, regardless of how defeated and deflated you are, how alone or afraid you might be, how life for you might not make sense right now, God is working on your behalf. And so, Father, I thank you. Thank you that you're still in the miracle-working business. You still perform miracles today, Lord. 
Who would have ever believed that those disciples would have been a touch so instantly that their situation would change in a moment's time? They went from having no hope to being filled with hope and spreading that hope to 11 other discouraged disciples. Give us, Lord, the ability to see past our pain, to see past the confusion on the horizon, to not want to exact revenge on our enemies, Lord, not to get hung up on those who are far from you, but, Lord, to keep pace with the scripture that's given to us, that we would want the salvation of everyone because that's your heart, that none would perish. Do it today, Lord, with a divine visitation of your Holy Spirit. Walk us through these deep waters to a place of knowing you are God and you are good. Let's take the bread and the cup together. Thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate your sensitivity during that communion time. I believe a lot of good things were taking place. If you'd like some extra prayer, we always have all altar ministers and uh, people who would love to pray with you. Take their time asking God to touch you in a special way. If you're at home and you need some prayer, we, we have a, a prayer button you can click and we'd be glad to pray with you. Father, we just thank you. Thank you again for your presence. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in our hearts. We want to honor you, Lord. We want to know you. I thank you, Lord God, that these are good days ahead. With, with hope in our hearts, we know that the future is a good one because you said that you had a plan for us, a plan to give us hope and a good future. I pray your blessing, Lord, on your people today. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.